I can't help but wonder sometimes if Jesus, standing on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee that day, had a larger view than of simply that crowd of people assembled on the hillside to hear him, to hear the great Sermon on the Mount he was giving. I can't help but wonder if the eyes of God present in Jesus did not see down the long span of history maybe even down to our time. I wonder if Jesus could see a day where here in America the officers who protect and serve us are being shot uh, routinely on our streets, where citizens and civilians are sometimes killed unjustly, where little girls playing in their yard are suddenly caught in crossfire between street gangs and killed. Could Jesus, from that point of view and vision, the man who would take a truck and make it an instrument of mayhem driving through a, a crowd on a holiday, children and families playing innocently and ravage and destroy them? Could Jesus imagine a day when shoppers in a Connecticut supermarket would see an open lane opening up and fall into a fist fight over who gets into the line first. Could he imagine, could Jesus see the day when two fathers attending a hockey game in Massachusetts would see a conflict between their kids on the ice and then fall upon one another to the point where one of the dads bludgeoned the other father to death. Could he see a world in which an airplane is forced to land because a passenger throws a beer can at a flight attendant and then bites the pilot who comes to try and calm down the situation? Could Christ imagine from that vantage point a world in which politicians would routinely demonize one another with flaming vitriol, a world where little girls, young girls, teenagers are burned alive for the crime of having said no to an unwanted sexual advance. Could Jesus see this world unfolding? Could this have been part of why he was speaking these words in troubled times to the crowd there that day? It seems to me that from the Middle East to the Midwest, human beings in our time are having an increasingly difficult time managing their passions. They are finding themselves increasingly struggling to figure out how to deal constructively with their hurts or their hassles or even their legitimate objections. As C. Leslie Charles has observed, amidst the increasingly fast-paced, friction-filled times in which we're living, rage is all the rage today. Rage is the rage of our times, a fuming, unrelenting sense of anger, hostility and alienation that just simmers for months, he writes, even for years without relief, and eventually all that it takes is a triggering incident, usually a minor one, for the hostile person to go ballistic. And we're seeing that happening more and more, it seems, in our time. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? And what does God's word have to say to us on this subject that might offer us some perspective and practical help? 
Well, I want to suggest to you today that one of the most important principles that the Bible gives us in the fullness of the counsel of this word is that anger is not necessarily bad. All anger is not bad. In fact, as Melvin Wheatley once observed, there are situations in life in which the absence of anger is actually the essence of evil. Where if if anger is not there, then evil is. Or to paraphrase Henry Ward Beecher, the great congregational minister, people that do not know how to be angry to their heart's core over cruelty and thievery and injustice and lives don't know how to be good. There are times when in order to be good, we have to be mad. We must be good and mad at the same time. And if you're not good and mad at some of the things that you're seeing going on in our society today, then maybe you aren't in tune with Jesus himself. After all, Jesus himself was not perpetually meek and mild, as he sometimes characterized or caricatured to be. The Bible pictures him sizzling with anger at the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We see him in Infuriated at the legalism of the scribes. We see Jesus incensed at the money changers who were ripping off the poor with usurious uh, uh, rates of, of purchase for the objects that were used in the ritual sacrifices of the temple. We see Christ seriously upset at those who ignored the needs of the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable in the society. In fact, nowhere in the teaching of Jesus or, frankly, the modeling of Jesus' life can we ever think that one of the great commandments of the Bible is thou shalt always keep your cool. It's just not there. It's just not there in the spirit and the practice of Jesus. So what then do we make of what we've just heard Jesus say to us in Matthew chapter 5. What is he trying to get at when Christ turns around and says that, I tell you, anyone who is even angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment? I, I think the answer lies in recognizing that the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about, the kind that he is targeting for us to think carefully about, is not the kind of, 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 of holy passion that leads us to move towards creative solutions to problems. Remember the story of the man who was sitting in his living room one night, one night and he watched for what he felt was the last and the umpteenth time the news of an airliner that had crashed, killing all those aboard because its wings had iced up and the plane had come down. And, he, and that particular night, sitting there with his TV dinner on his lap, the sight of, of the loss of all these lives spurred him to his feet to the point where his peas and carrots and everything were flying everywhere in a, in a holy anger that this should not be so. And he subsequently went out and invented the technology that now is used all over the world to prevent icing on wings. Anger of that kind that moves us to creative solutions, to desperate problems, is is a righteous kind of anger. It is, however, the very different sort of response that we're seeing today that I believe Jesus is speaking about in our text for this morning. And it is the fact that many of us learn along life's way 
an unhelpful response to the passions that rise within us that Jesus speaks to us so sharply in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to imagine, if you would with me, uh, a little boy who goes to school and winds up on the playground and is bullied. Uh, He finds himself the target, for one reason or another, of a big, strong boy who has taken a disliking to him. I remember a guy who felt like that about me when I was a little kid. His name was Tim, uh, and I was terrified of him. Well, this particular little boy is um, similarly scared of this big guy who's always poking fun at him and messing with his pants and doing all kinds of things that are very, very upsetting. And naturally, this little kid feels a wellspring of anger rising up in him, a sense of hurt, a sense of the injustice of this whole arrangement. And he has options in front of him. One of those options, of course, would be to go to the teacher. And, and, and describe to the teacher what he was undergoing and maybe get help from that teacher or to an older, much older child and describe the circumstances and have that person step in to assist him in these cases. But in this particular instance, the little boy is too nervous to do that. And so he, he does what many people do with their passions, their deep feelings. He simply stuffs them down inside. He pushes the feelings down uh, deep within him. Unfortunately, that does not fix the problem because the next day at recess, the taunting of this boy resumes. And, and he finds himself worked up again. He's, he's feeling this tremendous sense of upset at what is being done to him. And so this time, he resorts to a second strategy for dealing with his feelings. He decides to hurl insults at his offender. And he unleashes with a bunch of phrases that he's heard his older siblings say in uh, moments of passion, and uh, he ends up getting socked for this by the, the bigger boy. Now, the boy came by that strategy honestly. He has heard people hurling insults lots of places in life. He's heard uh, cartoon characters insulting each other. He's, he's heard comedians speaking cynically and sarcastically and crueling to each other. He's heard uh, political candidates talking in unspeakably harsh ways about one another. He sees this all around him. And he's noticed that on the playgrounds of this world, the people who seem to be feared or admired or at least celebrities are often the people who are quick to torch their opponents with very harsh words. And since the boy is pretty far from perfect himself, I mean, the kid makes mistakes, he has actually been the victim of a a torching word sometimes, even in his own home. And it's left an impression on him. And it begins to settle into his young mind that, that people's frailties and faults and flaws and foibles are, are not to be dealt with with kindness and perseverance and measured action. People's flaws, when you encounter them, are to be cauterized with scorching words. And this becomes part now of his way of dealing with anger. By the time he is a teenager, the child from the playground has unconsciously learned a third way of coping with feelings of anger. He's learned that you don't just insult the people who have done you wrong, you condemn them completely. 
That is to say, you completely write them off. You stop even seeing them as human beings. You have no longer any empathy for them. In fact, if he had lived in the time of Jesus, perhaps he would have called the offender in front of him raka, which is an Aramaic slur. It's a, it's a way of calling somebody totally worthless. It, it, it's a word for which the English translation, you fool, doesn't even begin to get close at the meaning. I can't even say the word properly because it would require so much phlegm coming out. It would be dangerous to those of you in the front rows. But it means that you have stopped seeing the humanity of the other. They are now a category. They are a group. They are a class of person to you and no longer an individual. And, and in the Jewish mind, to, to say raka to someone, to say you fool, was to contemptuously condemn that person as hopelessly beyond salvation. They are dead to you, except perhaps in their capacity to threaten and hurt you. And so finally, the day comes when the little boy is no longer little. And he has been schooled by a thousand experiences by now uh, in how to manage his emotions. Uh, he has heard all kinds of, of songs. He has watched all kinds of videos and films that reinforce uh, these tendencies. And he's now established a pattern of even doing more than, than stuffing feelings or insulting or condemning other people. Now he's moved to the fourth way of handling anger, he's lashing out physically. He starts by actually striking a girlfriend. Uh, and then he does that more than once. And, and another year he gets into a bloody brawl with somebody at a sports event. And then one day he returns to a place that's occupied by people who symbolize to him what he hates or what he feels hurt or hated by. And he pulls out a gun and he shoots five people dead. And it's all over our news. Now, I know that's a melodramatic story I'm telling you. I will grant you that there are times when to not speak a forceful word or even take a forceful action in the face of wrongdoing is the essence of evil. But I think you would probably also grant to me that we are seeing in our time far more cases, many more cases of the kind of devastating application of anger than we are of the appropriate kind of application of anger. At the root of many of the urban shootings and the domestic violence and the school violence and the hate crimes are people who once upon a time were children and increasingly they're being done by people who still are children that's what's so frightening. And the spark of anger in them has become a furnace that has slowly destroyed that person's capacity to empathize, to feel joy, to feel hope, to find the peace for which all of us long. And that is why those who know something about fires caution us to handle even the common sparks of life very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. This is what Jesus was getting at when he declares, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone 
who is even angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. In other words, will be subject to bringing upon him or herself a terrible calamity, a terrible crisis. Again, he says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. As a spiritual firefighter, Jesus understands that there is no place along the chain of flame from an angry spark to a raging holocaust that can be termed safe. When I was a kid, I grew up in a house, a lovely, beautiful home, and one day a tiny little spark, an electrical spark, got set off in the dryer in our house and set off a raging inferno that, that just did incredible damage to that house. Now, where was it a problem? Was it when the house was ablaze? Was it when the dryer was ablaze? Was it when the kitchen was ablaze? At what point was that spark a problem? When it was a spark. That's when, it, that's when if we could have, it needed tending. And, and so from the, the sin of harboring heated thoughts and nurturing them, to, to the act of blowtorching people with words when they're in front of you or not even in your sight, to the commission of physical violence. It is to Jesus one destructive substance from the beginning to, to the end. And, and, and to underline this particular idea, Jesus invokes a very familiar picture in the minds of his original listeners. It wouldn't have been obvious to you and to me without this explanation, but what Jesus says here, everybody would have understood. He describes, he tries to picture for people the hellish future that the kind of evil returning form of anger unleashes in the world. Uh, just south of Jerusalem, there was a, a deep ravine, a valley called the Valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. And at one point in ancient history, uh, this particular valley had become the premier site of worship for the Canaanite god Moloch. Moloch was the god of anger and destruction. In the Hindu tradition, the Shiva, perhaps. Uh, but, but, but Moloch was a, 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 a fearsome and terrible god. A and the worship of Moloch at first just involved um, kind of passionate um, expressions of outrage, identifying with the passions of the God. And over time, the Canaanite worship evolved to begin to involve uh, animal sacrifices and then uh, human bloodletting and then eventually a pattern of just atrocious, awful, uh, beyond description, uh, human atrocities, uh, murderous atrocities in that valley. In fact, the pattern of sacrifice became so wicked and bloody that King Josiah of Israel, when he took the throne, uh, declared the Valley of Hinnom off-limits. He declared it as a place nobody was permitted to go. It was only suitable now as a place where, where people could dump the unclaimed corpses of Israel and the refuse of Israel. And, and the Valley of Hinnom became a burning trash heap a perpetually burning trash heap. 
By the first century, the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom, or as the Hebrew word uh, calls it, Gehenna, Gehenna was referred to in common parlance as simply the fire of hell. The fire of hell. There's no way to cross over the Valley of Hinnom. There's no way to bridge that ravine because anytime you would try and build a footbridge across the ravine, the fires from beneath would consume the bridge, uh, would eventually destroy the bridge. The only way to, to, to deal with the Valley of Hinnom was to go around it, to be very careful to find your way around it. So, so Jesus understands that this, this is the way it is with destructive anger. Uh, the world is going to try and teach us to repress the passions, uh, to insult, to condemn, to strike out, but every one of those particular actions just feeds the flame. It's like pouring a little bit of gas or a whole lot of gas on the flame. And anger expressed in these ways or handled in these ways will heat up, absolutely escalate by subtle degrees till it burns away the bridge of communication or communion or connection or common cause and care that is meant to unite human beings. And it will burn away eventually even the bridge of character of the person who feels these things and it will burn away the, 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 the linkage between our passions and our principles till after a while it's only our passions lashing out, sometimes uh, at a justifiable sense of something being desperately wrong, but in the end it burns away not only the bridge of humanity, but even the bridge that connects us to God, even our connection with God. In this connection, I think of the artist who got into a terrible fight at one point with a, uh, a person in his life. A bitter, bitter, awful argument nearly came to blows, and he stormed out of that particular place. He went back to his studio. He tried to bury himself in his work. He was working on a painting. Uh, he found himself um, uh, coming to the close of the painting, but there was one final face that he needed to really capture. But try as he did, he couldn't manage somehow to envision the face. He had been very good at envisioning faces, but he could not somehow picture this one until finally it occurs to him that it's because of the boiling rage he still feels inside towards this friend of his, this other person, uh, that he's being blocked somehow from continuing his good work. And so he lays down his tools and he leaves his studio and he goes off and he encounters the, this other person, and he says, can we just talk about what has happened? And can I say that I'm sorry? And can I tell you why I think I went off that way? And the two of them talk, and the two of them reconcile. And then the artist returns to his studio, and he picks up his brush, and he looks at the canvas, and he sees the face and he paints it in. And I know this because he writes it down in his diary, this whole story. The artist was Leonardo da Vinci. The painting was The Last Supper. The face was the face of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see what? God. They shall see God. If we struggle sometimes in our lives to see God, as I know I do sometimes in my life, to really perceive what he would have me do, who he is in nature, what his plans are, could it possibly be that sometimes it's because we've got smoke in our eyes in one sense or another? Because it's really only as we choose to try to look with constructive perspective on the wrongs that are being done, as we try to look with mercy and compassion and courage and honesty and temperance at the troubles of our time, that we are able to commune with God. It's only as we make a passion for reconciliation part of our response to evil, and it's not always possible to have reconciliation. There are times when simply one has to draw the line and stop it. But it's as we move with the heart to create and not destroy, to render good and not evil, that we see with the eyes of God because this is the way God moves. He is the one who says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, says Jesus, if you're trying to see and encounter God and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then, then come and offer your gift. So could it be time for some of us to do that? Could it be time to pour some water, the water of forgiveness or of confession, upon some burning bridge someplace in our lives? Could it be some time for us to address some brokenness that's there within our family, between us and somebody that was once a friend, uh, between somebody in our workplace, between us and someone in our church, between us and one of our kids or our parents? Or could it be between us and somebody of a different life experience, uh, race, color, class? Could it be time to pour the water of forgiveness or confession upon the flames? What could we do to settle matters quickly with our adversary? We can do it, you know. We do not have to resort to the world's way of managing anger, even if we were taught it well as we grew up on the playgrounds of life. We always have this choice. We can pour the living water of Christ's Spirit upon the rage before the bridge is gone completely. And even if it seems sometimes like the way is gone, and sometimes you look at our world today and it feels like, wow, <laughs> the flames are everywhere. The way is gone. Remember, he is himself the bridge, says Jesus. He is the one who spans the great divide between human sin and human potential. And if we will seek his grace, his power, his presence, we may be amazed at what he can do with us and through us to close some of these gaps. Would you pray with me? Loving God, as we go forth into the world this week, we pray that you might enable us to be filled 
with the kind of humility and patience and hope and courage we see in Christ. That the spark of destructive anger, Lord, might be extinguished in us even before it really gets going. God, we want to be people and parents and spouses and leaders and servants in whom and, and through whom grace finally triumphs in this world. So if we have been nurturing the flame of insult or condemnation or injury, if we've let ourselves think that this was not going to be a real source of harm, help us to have the eyes to see the truth. Give us the eyes to see you. Fill us afresh with your grace and your power. Make us bold to go out in your name as builders of bridges, as ambassadors of reconciliation. In the name and the power of Jesus, we pray, saying together, Amen.